Welcome to One More Time. I'm Sean Smith, the executive producer for the podcast. This month's episode is titled Death and Taxes. We use the quote attributed to Ben Franklin as a starting point for this episode. We have two stories that center around loss from a very personal perspective and from the band world as a whole. This fall, the Marching Illini lost a former member very suddenly. He was a member of the trumpet section, and it shocked all of us. It affected the production crew of One More Time heavily, so much so that it was the reason our second episode had a delayed release. Our other story of loss comes from a conversation with Matthew Mislanka about the passing of his father David and the road to completing the 10th Symphony, which was recently premiered in Utah. Our final story is about taxes, which of course no one likes to pay, and if you are listening to this on the day of the release and you haven't paid your taxes yet, stop do that come back we'll still be here but for those of us who love band there is one tax we might not mind paying the band tax yes there is a band tax and it still exists in iowa the episode's producer is stephen Cohn, and he will take it from here as the host john philip souza once went to court today among other stories scott schwartz the director of the souza archive and center for american music will tell us of souza's court case with david blakely's family after blakely died and the family confiscated most of souza's performance books Everyone says behind a great musician is the support and love of their wife or significant other. I would say that um, Sousa clearly had that, but I think more so behind every great musician is a great manager. And Dave Blakely was that man. Um, He was an extraordinary manager of artists. That was his strength. Um, And... He had um, managed to take on Patrick Gilmore, a a leader of another New England um, band of great renown, and that um, worked very well for Gilmore, as well as Blakely, for about six years. Um, And as Gilmore's um, becoming uncomfortable with Blakely's management style and beginning to say he's going to leave Blakely. Blakely realizes he needs to find another musician to continue to grow his stable of fine artists. And he hears about the John Philip Sousa of the Marine Band and takes some interest in him. Blakely convinced Sousa to approach his superiors to ask if he could take the Marine Band on tour. Well, Sousa worked quite hard um, approaching his superiors to ask permission um, to leave. And of course, his superiors said no. And so, in true Sousa fashion, he determined an alternative backdoor strategy to get permission. And so, he went to the Secretary of Navy, Benjamin Tracy, and the First Lady, Carolyn Harrison, to have the two of them tag-team a request for Benjamin Harrison to allow the band to travel for five weeks the East Coast. It was successful, um, and the band did spend five weeks traveling, April and May of 1891. The tour was an artistic success. Uh, Sousa made quite a bit of money, but from Blakely's point of view, his return was quite low, and he was quite concerned. Does Sousa have the drawing power to raise enough income to make managing that band worth his time? So Blakely asks Sousa to approach the president a second time 
um, to do another tour, this time a longer tour, seven weeks, and to have the band travel to the West Coast. Harrison lets them go again, and that second tour, Susan makes a total of $8,250. That's straight profit for that concert experience. Now, to put these in relationship to what he's making annually as director of Marine Band, of which was just $1,500, you can imagine the almost $2,700 for the first tour and slightly more than $8,000 for the second, considerable sums of money. If we were able to convert these sums from 1891 and 92 to today's dollars, the first tour in today's dollars would be over $65,000. That's for a five-week tour. And for a seven-week tour, $205,000. There are not rock and roll bands that make that kind of money. When the Sousa Band, when it was concluding its tour um, and heading back to Washington, they stop in Chicago, and Blakely offers Sousa an opportunity. He says, I will pay you $6,000 a year to form a civilian band and play. And that civilian band has to be better than the Grand Paris Guard Band, which is the standard of national bands, of which Sousa agreed. Plus, Blakely would pay him 10% of whatever the proceeds were earned for each concert for the first year, and for the second year, 20% of those proceeds. The contract was signed. Now the first tour of the Sousa Band was scheduled in September of 1892. The concert was all set up for a September performance and suddenly two days before, September 24th, Patrick Gilmore died. Gilmore's gone. What do we do? The Sousa's Band concert took place on September 26th and the concert opened in a very touching manner when the band stood and played Gilmore's Voice of a Departing Soul, also known as Deaths at the Door. And not long after that, they started enticing Gilmore's musicians to the Sousa Band. The first large tour of the Sousa Civilian Band was somewhat successful but it wasn't bringing in the concert receipts that Blakely was expecting. Well, halfway through this tour, Blakely shows up and tells Sousa that he's a little concerned and considers closing down the tour. And Mr. Sousa is, is quite upset. I mean, he argued strenuously with Blakely not to achieve it and blamed um, part of the problem with the concert receipts, largely because Blakely did not know how to tour. He was touring in groups that Sousa basically said it would take somebody with a golden horn and a beautiful voice to entice to come to the concerts. And that's why he was having so much trouble. So between Sousa and Blakely, they agreed to continue the t tour they made some adjustments to the cities they were going to be at, and it became a much more profitable tour. And at that point, Blakely then realized this is a good investment. Blakely controlled the copyrights 
anything that Sousa wrote while under contract, but another part of the contract also stipulated that Blakely would control all compositions created by Sousa before the contract was signed. So you begin to see how Blakely is really filling his pockets with some of the um, the monies that would be coming from Sousa's um, compositions. David Blakely dies on November 7th of 1896. Sousa's in Europe at this time. And word, you know, hits him um, suddenly, and he's quite concerned about this. They have an extended tour already beginning December 27th of 1896, going well into the uh, 97 year, of which Sousa says, I have to stay true to that contract that Blakely established. Now, of course, he accepted the fact that now that Blakely is no longer alive to manage the band, he needed somebody, and he willingly let Blakely's wife, Ada, take the lead, and her children. Neither knew how to manage bands, but they know how to interpret contracts. The original contract signed in 1892 said that Sousa could make $6,000 annually and the 20% of whatever the proceeds. So when Blakely dies, Sousa is pulling in over $50,000 in proceeds from concerts, plus his salary had been raised beyond the $6,000 rate but it was never put in writing. The Sousa Band was forced to take on additional gigs they hadn't planned on it. And Mrs. Blakely then said that the Sousa Band was not to be paid until after all of the expenses were covered. And Sousa found that offensive, that they could not have steady money coming to keep the band going. And so he basically required of his new manager, who's accounting the proceeds from each concert, that they had to have a full house count and a total receipt list by the second piece of the concert. And the manager had to have that money in hand and had to come to the backstage to flag Mr. Souza to say that they had the money. And then he would complete the concert. There's one instance, um, where the manager was unable to get that money was on an April 1897 concert that the manager of the theater continued to talk to the manager and Sousa did not see the person come to the backstage to flag him to say that he had money but he had a full house and didn't want to disappoint so he did the full concert and when the concert was over the manager came to Sousa and he said, so how much did we make? And the manager said, the theater operator will not give us the money because they received a letter from Mrs. Blakely's lawyer saying that no money should be given to Mr. Sousa. And so there's this complete back and forth between the Blakely family and Sousa. It goes to court. After a very long court case, four years, the court ruled that Sousa could retain the name of his ensemble. He could not, however, retain the Sousa Library. 
all of the music was acquired by the Blakely family. And more importantly, Sousa then had to pay back to the family $30,000. Of course, at this point, think of it, Mr. Sousa has no music to perform from. And so he madly starts renotating those pieces and new pieces to create an entire new library. It wasn't until 1924 when the Blakely family finally sold back to Sousa the original band library. Now folks will ask, what's this got to do with taxes? And, well, you might say, you always pay the piper if you don't read the details carefully in those contracts. For this edition of Two Minute Rehearsal Techniques, we have Director of Bands at the University of Illinois, Dr. Steven Peterson. Okay, so the, the thing I'd like to talk about today isn't so much music, it isn't so much technique as it is uh, perhaps a style of teaching or some thoughts about teaching and what I believe one of the most effective and important things is. And that's a very simple thing, uh, kind of the worst, the, the, the use of the word good. I think the world is filled with lots of people who label things as being good, even when they're not. And that's kind of one of the worst things we can do for our students. Our students need to know that something is good when it, when it truly is. Um, over time, not just in the band world, but in the world in general, you know, we, we accept things as being good when they, when they simply aren't. So um, I usually kind of reserve that word in rehearsals for a time when something has really, when we, we really met some kind of a goal or, or something like that. I, I rarely will say to the students that that's good until it is. Um, the much better word pedagogically in every other way is to just say that's better. Uh, that's a way of acknowledging improvement but then normally that sentence is followed with a comma and fill in the blank with, okay, that's better, now we need to do blah, 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 whatever it happens to be. Uh, and I think, you know, I don't know how I could teach without that word, because I'm always telling people that that's better, that's better than it was, or perhaps that's good progress. But we are teaching an art form where it's impossible to reach perfection. So there's always something that can be better. And I don't think that's a bad thing for students to understand that this is a carrot that, that is dangled in front of us that we never really get a hold of, we never really achieve. So um, just be really careful about the use of that word. Um, do not label things as being good or great or super or whatever until they are. Label progress that way uh, and uh, keep people kind of moving toward that. Benjamin Franklin said it best in a letter to Jean-Baptiste Leroy in 1798. Quote, in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Well, it's April, which means one thing, tax day. With this episode being released in April, we thought there'd be no better story to tell than that of the band tax. Well, I'm uh, Derek Jenkins, uh, currently assistant professor of music theory and composition at Arkansas State University. Um, and I've been a long, I guess, supporter or band enthusiast um, since you know, high school playing bassoon um, and researched the Iowa band law as part of my uh, master's in musicology at the University of Missouri in Kansas City. In 1921, um, Carl King, for those of you that know uh, 
Iowa band history, moved to Fort Dodge, and um, about a year later, a gentleman by the name of Major George Landers, based in Clorinda, Iowa, which, if you don't know where Clorinda is, uh, don't worry, I didn't either. It's in the southwest part of the state. It's a town, at the time, about 4,500 people, now maybe has about 6,000. Um, so not, not a terribly large town, but um, George Landers was playing, or had a band there, and was trying to figure out a way to bring in money to the ensemble. So at that time, groups would you know, get their money through fundraising. Um, normally, they would kind of break even at these fundraising events. Um, they would throw dances and hope that ticket sales would bring in some profits. Uh, they'd collect membership dues. Um, and all of these things would go to paying for the music, paying for the rehearsal space, performance space, the conductor. Sometimes um, musicians would come in from a distance. And so they, but they could never guarantee that the money would be there. So Landers was you know, contemplating this idea and decided that you know, we should find a way that we can secure funding every year. We don't have to go and beg and borrow and you know, pass the hat to every concert. Pitch this idea of the, um, what became known as the Iowa Band Law, and it's unclear as to how it actually emerged on the um, House floor. Um, there's various stories of you know him talking with the governor, him you know, uh, drafting it with Carl King, uh, things of that nature. But ultimately, ended up on the House floor, and the bill was almost passed unanimously. There was such a strong support in the House and in the Senate for this bill. Um, it, the idea was that two mills, which is two-tenths of a penny, um, would be taxed, or could be taxed, um, in towns that agreed to implement this law. Um, and that money would go directly to a municipal bank. Um, so it was originally, there was an original cap of 40,000 people, a town smaller than 40,000. And so that, that included everything from Fort Dodge, Carl King's band, on down to these smaller groups like the one in Clorinda. And they uh, you know, received funding, that, you know, a steady stream of income, so they no longer had to worry about passing the hat. The law kind of took off immediately um, in the first five years of its existence, so it passed in 1921. Um, by 1925, the um, National Association for the Advancement of Music put out a uh, study of municipal organizations, and they found that about 250 Iowa communities had um, enacted this law um, or this tax um, stream for their municipal bands. Um, and then additionally, it spread uh, far and wide. It ended up at its peak, about 33 states had some kind of uh, ban law on their books. Uh, the Iowa one being the most generous at two mills, some ranged all the way down to a half mill or even less. Um, but 33 states and three uh, foreign countries. Um, my best guess was it was Canada, New Zealand, and I hadn't been able to figure out the third one. Um, but, yeah, it, it spread far and wide. Then, you know, come the 1930s and, you know, the Great Depression hits and taxes get reeled back in. Um, you know, people are barely scraping by. And so same thing happened with the bands. The two generous two mills tax became a you know, half a mill tax um, and then eventually went down to like 13 cents per thousand dollars or something, even even a smaller amount. Um 
The ban law eventually was opened up to larger cities, so um, the original cap of 40,000 people prohibited uh, four cities. Then you know, we adjusted the population um, cap up a little bit. Um, eventually all cities were able to implement this law with the exception of Des Moines. Um, that was a hard-fought battle for many years. Um, and the, the other big issue that cropped up for the Iowa bandsmen, so this was at its heart a band law. It was an idea that, you know, this money would be used exclusively for bands. And there's a couple um, tracks that happened that um, created some tension. So in throughout the 1920s um, and into the 1930s, the musicians in um, Sioux City, Iowa, so the, or northwest corner of the state, um, try to implement this tax or give these taxes to the symphony orchestras um, in the area, so community orchestras. Um, and the Iowa bandsmen were not happy about this for you know, obvious reasons. The orchestra kind of encroaching once again on the band's territory, and so they fought. You know, back and forth. Um, they even got involved in some of the gubernatorial um, primaries, um, trying to push against certain candidates that would either, um, you know, repeal the Iowa ban law or try to open it up for orchestras or other um, organizations. Um, they fought tooth and nail to keep it as an Iowa banned law um, and not open it up to other ensembles. The uh, what ultimately happened was that the in the 1940s, um, the representative representing Sioux City put forth a measure to create the Iowa Symphony Orchestra law, um, and so this allowed towns to now officially tax um, and bring in revenue for their community orchestras. Um, but through this process. The Iowa Bandmasters Association was formed, and this was, you know, originally to combat and support the Iowa Band Law. Um, but it's since expanded, and you know, other states have, you know, opened or created their own Bandmasters Associations. Um, but from my understanding, the Iowa Bandmasters Association was the first in the country, just like this Iowa Band Law was, um, the first of its nature. We are going to interrupt our stories for some announcements about Illinois bands. In the midst of recording this episode, various University of Illinois ensembles are wrapping up the semester with spring concerts. On April 20th, Wind Orchestra and Hindley Symphonic Bands will have a joint concert, with Wind Orchestra playing pieces including Fillmore's Rolling Thunder and Tekeli's Symphony No. 2. The Wind Symphony and Illinois Chamber Choir will have a sesquicentennial home gala concert on April 21st, featuring Diorio's Gathering. Campus and university bands will have a joint concert on April 29th, and British brass bands and clarinet choir will perform on May 2nd. Brass bands will present, That's All Folks, a cartoon tribute. A reminder that Illinois Bands now live streams all of their concerts. You can watch these live streams by liking us on Facebook and watching there, or by going to the Illinois Bands website at bands.illinois.edu. The stream will appear on our front page just before the concert begins. Please remember that all the times given are in Central Standard Time. So, there's a more somber side to Franklin's idiom. While taxes are always expected, death may not be. In this second feature, we tell the story of how the marching Illini responded to an unexpected passing. 
My name is Kim Guzzi. I'm a senior. Uh, this is my fourth season with the Marching Illini, and I play trumpet. The initial shock of learning that your friend passes is something that like everyone deals with differently. Um, and even though people were dealing with it differently, it was really amazing to see everyone come together on this topic and to let people grieve and let people accept this um, on their own terms, but also like together. Dominic Jackson was a member of the Marching Illini trumpet section for three seasons from 2013 through 2015. He marched with the band in the 2015 Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, performed in the athletic bands, and graduated from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign in the spring of 2017. He unexpectedly passed away in November 2017. Kim went to Bolingbroke High School in Bolingbroke, Illinois, and the U of I with Dominic. Uh, you know, a lot of people reached out to me, and I reached out to a lot of other people that I wasn't even expecting people to reach out to, but because we have this bond and we have this community, we were able to do that, and even though my needs were different than someone else's needs, we were able to kind of bridge those to be able to be one and to love each other and just to support each other through this that none of us were expecting and never hoped that it would ever happen. Um, but then it did, it does, it does happen. And then you have to work together to be together and be one again. Kim is referring to the notion of a band community, how tight-knit bands can be and how affected they can be by a major loss. The way bands responded to Dominic's passing exemplifies that beautifully. I'll let Kim explain the steps taken to remember Dominic by the U of I and outside groups during Illinois' first game day after his passing. So during the game, they showed on the Jumbotron a picture of Dominic, what he brought to the game days and to rehearsals, and it was really, it was a really good show of like who he was as a person, and it was, you know, as sad as it was, it was also a good reminder of the kind of spirit that he brought to everything that he did. Um, and it was really devastating, but it also is a good reminder to be energetic and to stay positive in what we're doing and to be happy to be able to do what we do. So the entire Marching Illini wore purple ribbons uh, to commemorate our member that we lost. And that was the same game that the Indiana University's band was there and their entire trumpet section wore purple ribbons as well as a show of solidarity with us and with what we've been going through. Indiana's Marching 100 trumpet section joined in on the remembrance, looking to offer support for the Marching Illini. My name is Amanda Petro. I am a third year member of the Marching 100. I play trumpet um, and I go to Indiana University. I am a music education major. I actually saw a post, a few of us from the, the 100 trumpet section saw a post in a Big Ten marching band's Facebook group. Um, and we received word that that had happened. And I was talking to my section mate, and the first thing, we both saw the post about the same time, and we immediately kind of turned to each other, and we're like, we need to do something. Um, so I just kind of, it was the first idea that came to my mind was, well, what's something that we can do that we can control and won't disrupt 
the day won't disrupt our travel plans. And it was like, well, we could we could wear a ribbon if our directors allow us. So uh, I talked to my friend about it. She's like, yeah, that's a great idea. Let's do let's do that. So we talked to the rest of the section, and everyone was on board. Like. So we uh, made sure it was okay with our directors that we would wear that because it's not something we usually do. Um, usually it's just the plain uniform and we don't add anything on the outside extra. But in this circumstance, um, we felt that this was this would be beneficial and appropriate. And they agreed. And so um, I went out and I bought the supplies to make the ribbon. And I made a whole bunch for our section and some extras just in case. And then on game day, when we arrived, uh, right before we started rehearsal, we just started passing them out to everyone and helping each other pin them on to all the uh, marching 100 trumpet section members' jackets. The efforts Amanda and her section mates did to help honor Dominic did not go unnoticed. From word that we received from people, it was just, it was so well received. And um, I didn't realize that, Mr. Hauser, I didn't realize that he had seen or noticed that we were doing that I, you know i it wasn't we weren't doing it to get recognized or anything it was just like we, we're here to support our band family and in um post game concert or when when after we marched back and then do uh, we were trading off playing with the marching alumni he said something about it and uh, my friend and i were standing near each other and we were like oh we didn't even realize that he he saw or that any, anyone had really like made it made it known and so it was just it kind of took us by surprise of like oh my gosh they they really did see that and notice and were really touched by that so that was probably the biggest the biggest reaction and we were we were just so happy to to know that we had made a positive impact in a situation like that that november game day wasn't the first time amanda has gotten to see firsthand the power of a band's community following the loss of a person to draw on another example um so i marched with the phantom regiment uh german beagle corps and uh i'm going into my fourth summer but last summer we had uh but there was a bus incident um one of our staff buses volunteer buses flipped and um, the driver of the bus passed away so going with you know that experience of the summer and then being on the flip side of offering the support here it's just everyone comes together despite differences in programs differences in you know uh what our goals are what our beliefs are and everything everyone comes together and it's the one thing we have in common is you know there's there's however many people but we all love music we all love performing and that's something that holds us together and knowing that you know, you you lose someone that can't do that anymore, that meant so much to you. Uh, it's like you, you want to do anything you can to show your support for someone else that shared the love that you did. So the, the band family is so special just because you can put aside any differences at any time. And in something, in a case like that where something terrible has happened, it, it's so neat to see people just put everything aside and say, you know, I'm here for you. And from Kim's point of view, she is touched that so many people came together to remember such a special person, and she is empowered going forward with the idea of a band family. I realized how big it is. Like, it's kind of easy to be on a college campus and just be in a bubble, and you're with the same people every day, but there are so many people that we interact with, like, either from our high school bands or other bands, like, other universities that go through the similar process um, and even like within the Big Ten schools, you know, there's a lot of community, there's a lot of um, 
relatability between us that when tragedy happens, you know, we come together and we support each other and because we know we know what it's like to go to rehearsals and we know what it's like to go to game days and um, and we hope that we don't have to know what it's like to lose one of our members but when it does there's a lot of empathy and sympathy for each other and because we have those similarities it's really easy to be empathetic for each other um, in those situations. I think I've always believed that there's a band family like we support each other, um, you know, it's a good way to meet people who are older and younger than you, like you go through college, not just people in your same age level, um, but also, you know, you come in as a freshman and you have seniors that are there to take you under their wing as, you know, their squad mom or their squad dad, and that sticks with you, uh, and then as you go through the program, you become those, like, mom figures or dad figures. Uh, or grandpas, however that turns out. Um, and it's just a really good support system. And even in high school, we talked about having a band fam because you go through the same thing every day, and it's just a, it's a way to support each other. A little less unexpected was the passing of composer Matthew Maslenka's father in 2017. Maslenka sat down with us to talk about how he moved on from a difficult time in his life. So just in just very general, as much as you're willing to talk about, uh, what were those months leading up uh, to his passing like, and what was he working on? Well, it depends on how far back you want to go. You know, things seemed perfectly reasonable, both my mom and dad, for um, you know up up until very near to when they uh, ended up dying. With my mom was admitted to the hospital, I think in April of seventeen. And you know, it was one of those things where it was just, you know, she just felt uh, too tired. And so she went to go get checked out and it turned out to be increasingly serious and increasingly serious. And so, you know, it escalated from this doesn't seem to be a big deal to, um, to being a terminal diagnosis in a very, very short period. And so a lot of, April, May, June were consumed with paying attention to mom and making sure that uh, doing whatever we could for her. Dad was diagnosed in I think May maybe. Uh, he was it is just completely out of left field. Like I said, you know, it was the same kind of deal. He felt tired for a long time. And but but never really anything specific or uh, worrying. It was just you know it seemed like he'd been traveling too much. And so the diagnosis came. It was already at the stage four cancer, which was insane. And so all this stuff was just overwhelming all the time. Most of our focus was on mom. She was increasingly weak, but uh, very much present and and mentally there. Um, dad didn't have any real strong outward symptoms for most of this time, but you know, after mom passed in the beginning of July, he, he seemed to go downhill fairly quickly in terms of his energy level and his ability to, to, to you know, be awake or out of bed. This became much more difficult for him. All, th this whole time is a little bit um, confused in my head 
just because so many things uh, mom died on Jul on July 3rd. I was in, came back to New York, I think, and went to Portugal. Um, mom and dad were, were supposed to go on this trip with me. Dad was working with uh, Philippe Fonseca over in, at the Estadio Solvald in Espino. We were working, we were going to work on symphony number seven. It was going to be a, you know, basically the first vacation that we, we've had in a very long time. So we'd, we'd booked the whole trip. And then mom fell ill and said, okay, so we can't do that. And dad fell ill. And we thought he'd be strong enough maybe to, to go for quite a long time. Um, but it just came down to it. It wasn't going to happen. So, you know, while, we, while I was in Portugal, we thought maybe... We'd be able to have Dad do a Skype rehearsal or something like that, but he also turned out to be incredibly weak. Like he he declined so quickly. Uh, we thought we'd have a year, maybe two. And between the time that he was diagnosed and eventually died, it was um, maybe two months, three months. But I got back from my trip and talked to my sister, and she said... You know, things were, were going downhill. I should I should come out as soon as I could. And so so that was on a Sunday afternoon, maybe Sunday night. We thought we'd have at least maybe a couple of weeks. We, we intended to go over the dad's plan for the symphony and to work through uh, the rest of what he intended for it. And then the next morning, found him. Um, yeah, he had died during the night. This whole summer has been, I keep using the word overwhelming, but it was just too many things at once. And the, the emotional overload became to the point of not being able to process anything further. We had been, Symphony 10 has been trying to happen for a long time, for a lot of reasons. After Symphony Number no. 9 in 2011, there was issues of who would do it, uh, there was political things that happened. He had a most of the, the piece written by the middle of 17. And he had started, had done the orchestration for the first movement and had started on the orchestration for the second movement. But he hadn't nailed down the third movement yet. He wrote most of a treatment and decided that he needed to go a different direction with it and did some sketching on that. He had finished the fourth movement a sketch but didn't do any orchestration on it so i thought it was important that i finished this work and i discussed it with the uh, consortium members and we decided this was the, being the right way to go forward with it when i got to montana after dad had died i had a, a clipboard with his sketch for the third movement the fourth movement on it and have since been doing my best to reconstruct his original thought process and what he might uh, where he might have gone with it based on my experience with his music and uh, my own training as composer and orchestrator. After he had passed, how would you characterize the response from those in the music world? It was an outpouring of grief. Nobody expected it, so it came as a surprise for everybody. You know, Facebook was filled with messages of their stories and their experiences with that. Many concerts dedicated to his memory. How, you know, how do you how do you deal with grief? It's a very personal thing. 
and it's a very uh, strange thing to do, especially in public. Everybody who wrote messages, who told their stories uh, publicly, it was very much a a shared grief. It was very much a community coming together saying, uh, this is really important to us, and it, and it hurts a lot. One of my interesting experiences was being at the Midwest Convention this year. This was in Chicago just before Christmas. And I exhibited our, our, our booth, Mass Like a Press booth. We had done this for a long time, or, or a few years prior, and we thought it was important to keep going. Uh, I have never had an experience of, uh, of grief in this way before. Um, you know, I've, I've never lost anybody that has been particularly close to me before this time. And so there's a lot of me figuring stuff out for myself, but then also having to be the public face of this and to be a, a, a person to whom people could tell their stories in person and know that they were being appreciated and cared about and listened to. And I'm, I'm guessing you heard a ton of stories. It's 20,000 band directors, high school and college. I mean, everybody's played this music. And, and many, many people came up and expressed their, their grief, um, told a story. It was, it's like, I use the word overwhelming like, so many times, but it's, it's, it's just that's what it was. And I'm grateful to be surrounded by people. Do you have a favorite story about him, whether it be in, you know, just in general or when he was, you know, working with a band or as a composer, just a favorite story that you can think of? His life was in his mind. My life is in my mind. And the stuff that happens around us is important. It required to be present, pay attention. But the things I always found interesting were working with ideas and so my experiences with him especially over the last few years have been about we're usually traveling somewhere we, we did quite a lot of traveling together in the last few years and so we'd be in some unfamiliar place and we'd take a walk and we'd talk uh, my experience with with dad was so heavily colored by our our conversations he was the, the person to whom I could talk and be understood. And I was the person to whom he could talk and be understood. Now it's time for our segment titled Source Material. During this monthly segment, we will ask a composer to discuss and break down a selected piece of music. This week, we are joined by film score composer Michael Markowski. Markowski graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree in film practices from Arizona State University and was named one of ASCAP's film and TV composers to watch in 2014. He will be discussing his piece for Wins, The Cave You Fear. You can also get a look at the music on our podcast webpage, as well as a full recording of the work. Well, The Cave You Fear was commissioned by a good friend of mine, Aris Golden, who was teaching at a middle school. And she commissioned me basically like five years in advance of 
when I would actually write the piece, just because for whatever reason, like her budget worked out that way. So she'd give me like one dollar one year, and then two dollars the next year, and then three dollars the the next year. And、uh, this was my first attempt at writing a piece for a middle school ensemble, a rather good middle school ensemble, but still,、uh, this was my first sort of grade three, real grade three piece. Well, first of all, I should say that、uh, I'm sure probably. Some people know this by now, but maybe not everybody knows that I didn't actually study music in college. I was a really mediocre saxophone player in high school, so when I got to college, I was rejected from the school of music, and so I had to—I still had to get a degree because, like, mom wasn't gonna not allow me to not have a degree.、Uh, I was a math major for a semester because I had a really cool—and I use that term very loosely—calc two teacher. But then the following semester, I had a really boring calc three teacher. Like he was straight out of the office space. Basically, I was just like not engaged whatsoever. So I, I kind of stopped going to class a little bit. I had to figure out something different to do.、Um, also, that semester, while I was a math major, I took my first like film theory class because a lot of my friends from high school were into film and theater and stuff like that. So they were in the film and theater department at Arizona State. So I went and took like a like a George Lucas class or something like that. Like literally, we watched Star Wars and and I just totally. Had the epiphany that film, in and of itself, is like a combination of every single art form imaginable, and I just fell in love with it、uh, as a craft and as a as an art form. So my degree is actually in film production. I didn't study film music, but I studied film production and film theory. So the hands-on and like when I was thinking about ideas for the Cave View Fear, I wanted to not write film music per se, but bring some of the elements that. That are kind of common in film scoring and bring them into a, a younger band piece. So, for instance, something that you'll hear in film music a lot, particularly like contemporary film music, is kind of、uh, mediant relationships between harmonies. So, like chords going from you know the one chord to either a major third or a minor、uh, third above that or or below it, the minor sixth or the major sixth. Very common in film scoring, but you don't really hear that in a lot of band music, particularly for this age group. So it was a way for the piece to sound a little bit more harmonically fresh, at least from my perspective. Now the title itself is borrowed from a, a phrase by somebody by the name of Joseph Campbell. Now Joseph Campbell, as a film major, I studied a lot about him because he was basically、uh, to totally oversimplify what his work was, but he was somebody who traveled the world. And studied storytelling basically from all kinds of different cultures from all corners of the globe. And what he did is he saw what each of these stories had in common, and he kind of distilled all the world stories to their essence. And so we have something, at least in, in、uh, screenwriting, called the hero's journey, which is basically the common kind of plot points that every protagonist in like many different stories kind of has to follow in order to get. What he or she is looking for in the end. So, this is sort of from one of those elements of the hero's journey. And the, the the quote from Joseph Campbell is, "The cave you fear to enter holds the treasure that you seek." And so, for every protagonist in along、uh, along his or her journey, has to kind of go into a darker place in order to get the, the like to reach the goal that they're going after. And so, this piece is sort of a literal. Representation of that, like the the middle section is a, a slower, more ambient. That's sort of maybe the literal going into the cave. The final third is maybe like battling whatever demons or monsters are in that cave. I mean, it's again, it's just a sort of a fun way to kind of represent what Joseph Campbell was representing in stories.
it, the piece doesn't necessarily follow the hero's journey specifically, but it like kind of pinpoints one part of the hero's journey, perhaps. In the middle of the piece, I mean, again, that's that's kind of where this whole idea comes in most literally. Like, uh, we're really trying to paint some musical sound effects, particularly in the in the middle of the piece. So there's uh, something called a super ball mallet that's kind of scraped on a tam tam. It's also scraped on a timpani head, which is a really cool sound. It sounds very eerie, and like if if your musician is actually like changing the pitch of the pedal too, it just sounds like a monster kind of gurgling. It's, it's a very otherworldly sound, which is kind of cool. I also incorporate a very basic saxophone multiphonic to get just like a really screechy, weird sound. To just everything kind of uh, combines to, again, just kind of musically paint this world of the cave or someplace dark, someplace mysterious. And uh, one of the other sound effects in the piece is uh, a lion's roar. But I ask for that lion's roar to be amplified, so if you're able to amplify it over like auditorium PA system, it's going to sound larger than life. Finally, I think this was in 2012 that it finally, no, 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 is it 2012 or 2014? I don't even know when I wrote this. Oh, 2014. You're going to edit this? Okay. Yeah, yeah, take everything out of context. Thank you for joining in on this episode. Also, if you have made it this far, we have one more favor to ask of you. If you are getting this through iTunes, please rate the podcast. If you are grabbing this through the websites, please like the post. And since you'll be on those sites doing that, if you could leave us a comment, we would really appreciate it. If you like this episode, you can also help spread the word by sharing this through Facebook. Your help will go a long way to getting more people to listen and enjoy this podcast please consider following us on iTunes to make sure you don't miss anything if you enjoyed today's show. If you want to stay current with Illinois bands between episodes, follow us on Facebook or join us on Instagram at Illinois underscore bands. Find us on Twitter at Illinois bands. And of course, watch us on Snapchat at Illinois underscore bands. You can always check out our website for more information, www.bands.illinois.edu. The executive producer and host of today's show is Sean Smith. And the staff of the podcast includes co-host and occasional producer Daniel Dresser, co-host and producer Stephen Cohn, Christian Arkin, and Mary Allison Mahachik, who is also our script supervisor. The mixing of this episode and recording of segments is done by Sam Litt and Zia Fox. Of course, none of this would be possible without the Illinois Bands faculty. Stephen Peterson, Director of Bands, Linda Morehouse, Senior Associate Director of Bands, Beth Peterson, Associate Director of Bands, and Barry Hauser, Associate Director of Bands and Director of Athletic Bands. Illinois Bands is part of the School of Music at the University of Illinois and the College of Fine and Applied Arts. We would like to thank Dr. Stephen Peterson, Scott Schwartz, Michael Markowski, Matthew Meslenka, Amanda Petro, Kim Guzzi, and Derek Jenkins for their contributions to this episode. We hope you'll join us next month on One More Time.